0: The same old tactics, not only don't work in the same way anymore, but it was never correct to follow them verbatim in the first place, because one buzzwordy activity or one playbook is never gonna work forever because the nature of the world is that things change, right? I'm Margaret Kelsey. And I'm Devin Bramhill. And this is Don't Say Content. And shout out to our producers at Share Your Genius. They're great at creating shows with strategic outcomes in mind. They've been with us since the podcast was just an idea, and they helped us bring it to life from strategy all the way to execution, and we absolutely
1: love partnering with them. So if you, dear listeners, are thinking of launching a podcast, which you definitely should, by the way, we recommend having a conversation with our favorite people over at Share Your Genius. Now let's get into it.
0: So we've been thinking about buzzwords. It's come up a few times for both of us because I think what we realized is that we missed the sort of important part. We buried which is the lead. The- yeah, we did. Because the problem with buzzwords isn't just that they annoy us. It's causing this miscommunication between not just CEOs, marketing leaders, but CFOs, CTOs, and marketing teams, because there are times when they are saying the same thing or similar things, but the individual assumptions or understandings of the word itself, the buzzword, is causing this breakdown. And because even using the word that represents the thing, so like webinars, when you're talking to someone who isn't a marketer, They don't necessarily even know what webinar means beyond, like in terms of the ROI, the time investment, and how you can extend that. Yeah, You know, how it can be, in the right circumstances, a very efficient thing to do and very bottom of funnel. But we need to talk about this more because this is a huge opportunity for all of you to get involved in this crisis of buzzwords. And help us eradicate them forever. So thank you for being here in advance.
1: <laughs> I like that we're breaking the, the third wall. Is that what that's called? The third wall? I feel like we don't often break the third wall. Yes. You're trying to start a movement, which I appreciate. Need to. Have yeah. to. Yeah, It's got to happen. It's got to happen. And I think even today, I was talking with somebody and they th- they threw around the term ABM. And when I prodded on what they actually meant by that, They were talking about paid ads that were targeted towards a target account list. Oh, I'm glad I asked because I would have thought that you had done a lot more than just paid ads to a targeted account list. If that was what you were saying is just ABM as shorthand. That's a good one, actually. Yeah, that's a really good one.
0: Ashley and I just presented at two conferences, two different concepts, but both hovered around this idea of community. Yeah. Building and influencers specifically, we're talking about the people inside your company. Mm. Like we call them internal influencers because it's literal and <laughs> even though it's nose. boring,
1: I like it. It's on, yeah. The nose. <laughs> it's like
0: it is what it is. And even in those two things, the questions that we got following those presentations demonstrated that even those don't ha- hold the same meaning for everyone. Yeah. I got a great one from this woman named Alyssa who I don't think was prepared for the amount of response that I gave her. She um, wanted a yes or no answer. Had, <laughs> yeah, pretty no. I mean, like it was I said to her at the end I was like FYI this could have been a few sentences but you really got me thinking and so <laughs> I'm sorry. That's amazing. (laughs) But she, so we had shown two slides. Slide number one showed the, I guess, traditional customer journey where you've got those linear phases and then you've got those loops on top of it that place activities along that journey. The last activity is labeled community. So then we duplicated that slide and we highlighted the many community activities that already exist in the customer journey, mm. like word of mouth and, you know, social and things like that. So For the, the listeners, there the was woman, a lot of air quotes around those things. Yeah. Don't get me started on how social media itself is basically a buzzword now. So, meanwhile, Alyssa writes this question that was so, like, I loved it because it was, she was basically like, look, you – Show community as a thing at the end of the journey in your first slide. But in the second slide, you highlight it as one of the community activities, but you've got all these other ones throughout. Yeah. And she's like, I'm just trying to understand what does that mean? Yeah. Such a good question. It doesn't seem related to buzzwords, but it actually does because community in the customer journey as it stands today is used as a buzzword in that. It doesn't have any description. It's just a concept yep. that's put out there. And for some reason, it's put at the end as like a nice to have once you already have your customer journey flow like working, which is false and wrong in every way. When really there's all these activities. And so, like, using community in the customer journey as a single thing doesn't facilitate the type of thinking that will help you use community as an asset in your marketing mix it's a concept and the concept is how can you leverage your networks in your marketing strategy yeah so you know it's networks of the people at your company through the communities they're already engaging in and the relationships they already have your c suite your investors etc And there's lots of different ways to do that.
1: Yeah. That's the thing. When we're talking about community, we're not talking about a tactic or even a program of community. We're talking about the philosophy of community, which is can you bring groups together and create a sense of belonging? And then you inherit the credibility of bringing that group together and having that sense of belonging. And that can happen in lots of different places in your marketing journey. It could happen for, there could be customer communities, there could be non-customer communities, there could be you infiltrating communities that already exist. But that is like, it's almost more of like a philosoph- philosophical approach to marketing rather than like a program. Exactly. If you
0: decide to join a community, how you join as a brand and whether or not you should join as a brand or whether you leverage folks at your company is a... Make or break situation, and then this whole idea of influencers, colloquially, have been considered folks with big followings, and you know there's a specific way you work with them. But we're like, no, the rise you can of leverage the micro influencer, yeah, yeah. But even within your company, like an influencer doesn't have to be someone outside. It could be someone inside your company. It Help Scout, Matt Patterson legend in the support industry he was on our our marketing team because like who better we were using our support team our sales team our designers developers like c-suite individuals they were all of them were a part of my marketing program at help scout and it was all about building i hate to use this term but it absolutely applies that is how you build a moat and how you A way for you to not have to self-sustain it because if you participate in the right ways for that community, they will continue to sing your praises as a brand without you having to do anything once you have like once you've established that. Trust and participation.
1: The thing that comes up to me with those is number one, like marketing it as connective tissue within a function. And this idea that everyone, you can enable everyone in the company to be on your marketing team. I think we did a a decent job of that at OpenView because we knew that we had so many people out there in the founder community, right? Whether it was the folks on the platform team or the investors or whatever it was. And it's like every single one of those people should be empowered to be feel like they're part of the marketing team to deliver that message that we need to deliver, right? And then the other thing is just like this community specifically as a buzzword, but like how often I see in conversations, this like repeated talking past each other, right? This idea that like, everyone is still using these terms and talking past each other. Like, thank God, that woman stopped you and said, what do you mean by community? Or what in this slide, I can take it in multiple ways. She's going to go far in life because she's able to ask an important question, which is tell me about the words that you mean. But I'm just floored by how many times I'm still seeing this happen. And if you probe one level deeper, the worst thing is if somebody is using the term themselves and you probe one level deeper and they actually don't know what they're talking about and how often that happens. We got
0: into this playbook era. Yeah. Those create crutches and they don't encourage individual thinking. And that is the same trap of buzzwords. They automatically limit your thinking based on a colloquial definition that was completely made up. Like the number of people who like are actually today arguing about whether or not Chris Walker came up with the term dark social or whether it's the scientist guy that you find when you Google it, who coined it in 1993, that's not the point. The point is, do you know what dark social means and who cares?
1: And also, we should be having a conversation about the fact that every behavior that marketing affects is not, unique, not intrinsically trackable. That's an important conversation to have alongside of do we need shorthand for it, right? Like I think that our over-reliance on needing to shorten things is the issue. Why don't we all just talk about the fact that, hey, remember, human behavior is very hard to track through marketing analytics perfectly. Instead, we just say dark social and somebody thinks like, oh, dark social, I know what that is. And maybe they don't. And maybe they just make it up because they don't want to act like an idiot and ask what somebody actually means by it. And I think like really every conversation I have the more and more I try to remove marketing jargon from my conversations, the more insightful the conversations are, which is let's talk about how human beings buy, what convinces them to take a chance, what convinces them to open up their wallet, what convinces them to put a lot of time and effort into adopting a new solution. Let's talk about that stuff rather than like, yeah ABM and dark social and nearbound and blah 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 what are the the consistent human traits behind all of these things and can we understand how we can create programs to affect those things yeah the same old tactics not only
0: don't work in the same way anymore but it was never correct to follow them verbatim in the first place because one buzzwordy activity or one playbook a is never going to work forever because the nature of the world is that things change right and then b they don't they whitewash individual circumstance therefore they limit thinking to stuff that already has worked but not anything new and you wonder why we're all bored (laughs) and it's like how could you not be we're sitting on so much opportunity in the form of experiments. And it is hard to find in the masses folks talking about that. It's just going back to if I'm a marketer and I'm having trouble selling it upwards and they're like, well, I can't report all my activities. I'm like, okay, what can you do? How can you relate to your leadership. Here's what they're thinking about. Here's the type of thing they need to hear from you. You know, I think it's like this whole thing of instead of creating a term, why not bring everything out into the open? For example, when you present a plan, part of your strategy in getting stakeholders to buy in is you say, here's what I know and here is what I'm guessing. hmm And here's what's behind my assumption. I want to try this because based on these criteria, I believe this could have this range of impact. Yeah. Will you let me try this? Or just, I'm going to try this. If you think like from first principles in everything you do and use that as your means of communicating, buzzwords won't come into play anymore because you're speaking your own
1: language. Are you, you speaking just a about? truly common language? I think we should be more inspired than ever because when all of these like buying behaviors and channels and things switch underneath us, the curiosity that I have is what things are remaining as consistent human behaviors of how we buy things and take chances and how we spread recommendations amongst each other and all of those like traditional things that human beings have always done. That to me is like what piece of this remains versus what piece of this gets thrown out in the trash. And that to me is like a place of a lot of curiosity and excitement and energy. But if you are just thinking, like, oh my God, my playbook isn't working anymore, what the fuck do I do? That's where you're gonna be drained as as shit, you know?
0: Yeah. And you're limiting yourself. When the SEO boom hit and companies like Help Scout were growing their, at least their traffic at the time exponentially. That was people seeing like, oh, I have a unique advantage because I'm early on this.
1: Yeah.
0: Right now, there is opportunity just like dangling from the sky. Why did you want to talk about category creation? And can you give me a definition? Can we just spend a while understanding what it is?
1: Listen, I will Google it. Uh, so we can see what the internet is saying it is. Because there's a bunch of books, right? There's Category Creation, How to Build a Brand that Customers, Employees, and Investors will Love. I mean, there's still some articles coming out today. I don't know what this site is. It was the first thing that came up, but I had to click it.
0: It starts with, Category Creation is the Ultimate Growth Strategy. According to research published in the Harvard Business Review by our friend and fellow category pirate, Eddie Yoon.
1: Yeah, this is a 2013 article about category creation that I'm I'm in the HBR article right now.
0: It's yeah, and there's there he's saying it's a management strategy that has been employed by the most successful companies for years. It involves the creation of new categories of products and services to introduce to the market. Why? Like that is something. So I used to work for a marketing consultancy that did that. And but we actually were like making
1: new physical things. products, yeah.
0: Yeah. And so it that makes sense to me. I think where I keep thinking I know what it means but then I don't is like what does it mean B2B SaaS company yeah. or just like tech in general? I don't know. Like what?
1: Well, and I think what happened was like back in 2013 I'm thinking like there's all of the like on-premise big software companies and then there was like a whole bunch of and it was kind of like the I think a little bit of the PLGification of software startups, where it's like it became easier for founders to start software companies, they then could position themselves as being a category creator. But now I think that any new software startup is thinking of themselves as a category creator, which then makes nobody a category creator, right? There's just no categories and your software is just kind of bespoke for the thing and we don't have to worry about it anymore.
0: Yeah. And like, didn't it become kind of a marketing strategy too? That always confused me. Whereas like, how is this a marketing thing? Yeah. Like, it's fine. It's part of it. Like, you don't create a new product in a vacuum, right? I just knew that whenever customers came to me about creating a new category, I moved the conversation away completely because I think
1: you're like, you read too many articles about something that you don't actually like, tell me what you're actually trying to do. And I think what yeah. it is, is I'm trying to stand out in a crowded market, right? I'm trying to stand out. I'm trying to get to the right people. I'm trying to make sure that they understand that we're different somehow. And that, to me, is, is a lot of marketing. I feel like all these articles are just saying, like, it's the ultimate
0: strategy. But I'm yeah, like, yeah. what? What so is category it? Category creation and the example of HubSpot is the gold standard for what CMOs dream of achieving since defining and owning a new category can be directly measured in terms of its impact on a company and the broader industry.
1: It's more of like, it's even like movement creation, right? It's, there's like a couple books, but there's one specifically. And at AppCuse, we went through that whole process of like, okay, now we're a like platform that enables product-led growth, right? We're a product-led growth platform. And we did all of this stuff, right? Where we like defined it we were like this is the movement we did that category creation work but I think now that I think of any sort of marketing program I think that every company should have a big broader vision a big broader like future world that they're trying to create and then the product lines up to it so to me it's become so table stakes in how we think about marketing that it feels silly to call it something other than what it is you know which is just like, that's how you do marketing. Like that's specifically like community-led, not community-led marketing, but marketing programs that understand community tends to be this category creation thing just in different words.
0: Historically, company strategy involved having a bigger vision for the industry in which you're entering and trying to impact. You are trying to answer Not all companies are trying to answer new problems because some companies can strategically come in and be like a lower price, for example, or whatever. But, you know, if you're – when you're introducing a product, like you want to know what question – like what problems you're solving and how your net new thing can solve those problems. Yeah. I just have never understood – that concept of category in our context, in a marketing context specifically, because if the product is already there and then you as a CMO are coming in and trying to create a category, like the category creation happens at the product at the beginning of the product concept. You would hope. And then it's like product. Well then what is product market fit then? Do you know what I mean? Like it's so bizarre. And then this like, Everyone has to say the defensible moat. The defensible moat. I remember Walter saying that to me all the time. I'm like, okay, what's a what? Oh, wait, first, of all, I want to wait, wait. What is a defensible moat
1: versus a moat? Like, I what wanna, are we saying? I want to, I want to double, double click on that, which is another fucking buzzword. I think that the difference between product market fit and category creation is just active and passive voice. Product market fit is like passive voice. And category creation is like active voice, but they're not. But you know what I mean. Like, pa- like product market fit is like, oh, we have it, we don't have it, and I feel like they were like people were getting frustrated with the fact of like we have it or we don't have it, and they're like, you know what? There's something we can do to like make it, and so it's, <laughs> we're going to create our own category. And then yeah, that was the
0: only way. It's almost like that small set of terms helped product people, like founders, product people talk to VCs about giving them money and they all just recycled it and assimilated because that was the way they could talk to each other in ways that they all understood. Or thought that they understood. Yeah. It's like, again, I would love to just like, someday I want to sit down with like a founder and a VC, maybe in separate rooms. And I want to be like, can you tell me the difference between a moat and a defensible moat? And is there an indefensible
1: mode? Deleting, because I think to have a defensible one and a lot of bridges over it would be an indefensible mode.
0: Yeah, like what?
1: <laughs> and also, like,
0: can you explain to me what category creation means to you? And it doesn't matter. The thing is, what we're talking about doesn't matter at all. I just remember feeling like there was this big barrier to entry when I joined the tech world because of all the terminology yeah and then at various stages the same thing I was like am I an idiot like this just doesn't make any sense to me
1: no there were were
0: terms that did but like there was a whole huge group that didn't and don't and you know like today I was talking to a client and he was saying NRR and I was like NRR are you using that now and he was like net revenue retention I'm like right okay we have another fucking acronym acronym that sounds like the other one it's like it's just a
1: choice to focus on reten- revenue retention over churn. Yeah. When you start to see the fact that it's all made up and it changes all of the time, you become less precious with these things too, right? You're like, sure, I'll measure my net revenue retention, but we'll see what people care about in in 6 months, you know? <laughs> like if, if I was in logo a retention, it might be, you know, I don't know. Yeah. And I think maybe it's easier for
0: us to see because we're talking across companies. And so, you know, you sort of become this language chameleon a little yeah. bit where you're like, okay,
1: how do you want to talk
0: about it today? And that's yeah. fine.
1: Like it oh, doesn't... I literally keep notes about like the language that clients use internally because I want to be able to like make sure that I'm speaking their language. Right. But also having to make sure that I understand and I'm saying the right terms. I think that's like, so when I lived
0: in Bali, you learned Indonesian because... That was like, you know, the language of the archipelago, right? You knew that, like, that was, but yeah. there were dialects even among different villages, definitely amongst different islands. And there was, what, like 17,000 or something. So I feel like this
1: is our version of that is like, yeah. which dialect? Which dialect am I running into? Which is why I feel like I can kind of cap myself at four ish, five ish clients, because outside of that, I would not be able to keep straight all the different dialects, you know, yeah. and my favorite is yeah. when they make up their own terms. And then I have to I think that's actually easier for me, I would prefer it to be a completely made up bespoke term for that company, because then there's no cross pollination in my brain. And it can be a, like a separate thing.
0: Yeah, I like that. One of the one one of the custom ones I liked was Lancer. And I was like, oh, yeah, those are freelancers. And it was just sort of a... Oh, that's a- also cute. Yeah. It was short form
1: freelancers. I was like, yeah. oh, okay. I like that. Lancepreneurs oh. is what we should call
0: them. Don't test
1: me, Margaret, okay? It's Tuesday and I'm already tired. <laughs> You're the worst. Lancepreneurs. I think I'm going to buy lancepreneur.com.
0: So we, I think we agree that this this whole category creation thing we don't need to think about because it's not important.
1: Yeah, and I think that like... I get very nervous these days whenever any founder or CEO comes to me excited with something that they think is going to be the magic bullet, whether it is like paid ads or SEO, which we talked about, or honestly, like category creation. It's like they read a book and they're like, this is going to be the thing that solves it. And I think that those fundamentals that we're talking about, which is like product strategy being the thing that drives the business and marketing strategy kind of scaffolding off of that, that to me is the thing that solves everything, right? You have a, a clear purpose and vision for your product and the people that it serves, and then marketing can do their job. That's ideal. And I think that's like the best case scenario. I do think that you can
0: market a company that doesn't fully have that vision
1: Oh, I know. I've done it.
0: (laughs) Right. And so I'm like, but yes, ideally it's that. The problem and the solution aren't any of these buzzwords around like, what is it? The real bad thing is trying to make a one-hit wonder solution. That's when you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Because even the same client I was just talking to, they were talking about community building. And we all know that that's something I am really enthusiastic about i see it as a unique growth opportunity especially right now and i was said i said to him i was like i don't think this is what you need to be focused on right now yeah because he he had already decided he's like i don't think this is a priority i was like absolutely not no you're right and it's because of the unique circumstances of where your business is at right now there are low-hanging fruit opportunities within your product And within your marketing, you've already identified the lowest hanging fruit opportunities for you. And because you have a small staff, it doesn't make sense to try something like that because it's going to take some experimentation. That to me is the answer is like, if it's ever one thing and that thing needs to make a big difference really quickly. I'm scared. (laughs) I'm like, no, 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 no.
1: I know we keep going back to, or I keep going back to like altitude or like time scale, but like that's leadership, right? To say six months, this is the plan. And then I know that I will have a different plan at this point in the future, right? Yeah. And then there's also the challenge of getting
0: bored buy-in, right? And you need time for that. Right. And like, I think if you can't get that backing, and this has come up in multiple conversations I've had recently with VC-backed CEOs. Like the buy-in isn't just head of marketing up to CEO. It's also they are accountable to someone because money obviously isn't free. What are you able to get buy-in to do? And then if you can't, you know, some of the advice they do get isn't good. Yeah. And so then you got a team that knows it. A CEO is trying to like say it's the right thing to do and you're like, oh, this is a
1: mess. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that that brings up when I'm hearing you talk about it is like leadership and persuasion, right? Can you be persuasive enough, right? Are you able to be persuasive enough to get people aligned to your vision? And I see that there's a lack of that skill set in places where I would expect to see it, right? Heads of marketing, founders, that is a critical skill that's missing, which is how do I make sure that I am aligning like what I want to do with the desires, needs, concerns of the people that I need to get on board?
0: Well, there are so many things in there. One, not all people who are good at selling and persuading are good at the thing they're selling and persuading someone to do. Yeah. I just had a friend the other day who got laid off and he's like, he's a growth marketer. Like he is tied directly to revenue. He's good. He shows results and he can prove it across companies. Like he's legit. He's focused. He's calm. He's the guy you want. And, but he he doesn't want to go selling himself as a consultant. Yeah. Yeah, And he just wants to do it. And so I think that's one thing is like, I've even seen that on the consulting side, people are really good at selling themselves agencies too. And then they get in there and you're like, oh, no, that's bad. And so it's like a skill that, right, some of the best people maybe don't have organically and it's hard for them to develop. And then you have the other side of the persuasion is finding a right fit investor from the get go and whether or not the right fit investor is the one that invests in you. And I'm not... I've never gone after funding before, so I'm not going to pretend to know beyond the many stories I've heard. It's like, I I can't pretend I know what that's like deeply, but it's like, ideally you just have someone with you who is aligned and then stays aligned right now when things are hairy and give you that extra runway and support. There's a little hairiness there because everybody is, everyone's beholden to someone else. Yeah. And it's yeah. like going back to like bootstrapped companies. Can we just go back to borrowing money and paying it back? Is that fine? Just a little
1: debt. That's, yeah, it's a fantastic strategy. Again, maybe we need to get a CFO on here to help us talk through those, like when you would do either. I know that there's some strategies of when to raise capital versus debt. But um, yeah, I think the this idea of like, aligning to a plan feels like when we get into that issue. And I think if you can align to shared values, then the plan can change and then you feel less bad about the plan changing. And I do think that there's some piece of that here with like finding Partners or starting to persuade. It's like if you can persuade somebody way easier if they're aligned to the same set of values that you're aligned to than if you're operating from different va- va- values. And even you might align somebody from different values on the the plan that you have, but they're going to do it in a way that kind of feels weird, like the execution might be off. Right. And so I do think that there's like that step above like what is the thing that we're aligning on is like, do we? operate from the same set of values so no matter what happens are we going to make similar decisions yeah plus vision i think the vision piece is really important
0: honestly the values are and it's not person like the values that i the way i think you're speaking about values is values around the how you run the company and i don't necessarily mean that in a form fuzzy way yeah like no, I don't. it's like a shared run.
1: decision-making framework, right? Or like these—these yeah. these are the things that we prioritize when we're making decisions. These are the things that we think about when we're making decisions.
0: Yeah, that's more important. And then just like where the company is going, because yeah, I mean, look, nothing's perfect. As we said before, everything is broken, and thank goodness because it means there's lots of opportunity to, you know, shake things up and do things differently. We need the
1: phoenix that rises from the ashes. Okay y'all, that's a wrap. Thank you as always for listening. We'll be back next week and just remember, you're doing great. You're doing Thank
0: great. You. 30% of you are doing great. The rest, you got to get your shit together. Come on.
1: You know, you know which side you're on this week. You
0: know. <laughs> you
1: know. See you next week. Bye. Bye. What's <laughs> the best advice?
0: What is a piece of advice that you have gotten in your career?
1: No, this was supposed to be me asking you, not you asking me what I should be talking about. Oh, my could be life advice or it could be like work advice. But just like the best, the things that you are operating from your own value shared decision making framework, like how do you make decisions? The first best piece of advice that didn't have anything to do with work and that
0: I use in the work context all the time is when my mom repeated this quote to me as a kid, what you go after eludes you, what you become you attract. I love that. And I think that was what helped me establish early on. Before I was even a boss, like what it meant to me to be a leader and what things I valued. So by the time I became one, even though I wasn't expecting it to happen that soon, I was ready. Like I already had that in you know, the concept
1: of that in my mind. Because you felt like you had become the leader that you knew that you could then step into the role. No. Okay. You're never ready
0: to be a CEO even when you're ready to be a CEO, probably unless you've been a a CEO a bunch of times, but definitely not the first time. Um, But I I at least thought from that perspective and that made it really easy for me to identify what my values were. Um, There's a piece of advice that I wish I'd listened to more, also from my mother. She said, I was worried about achieving something once. Like a goal or something. And I was like, Mom, what if I can't do it? I felt like my reputation was on the line. This is like way back in Boston. And she's looked at me and she's like, Honey, when have you ever failed at anything you set out to do? She's like, Name one time. And she said, The question, a better question to ask yourself is whether or not you should do something, not whether or not you can. Because you know, a lot of times what you do is driven by ego. And that was definitely the case with me. I wanted to be great. Yeah. And I wanted to prove to myself that I was great. Mm. And that was, turns out that's impossible. Like that there's a, you don't do it by achieving anything. You do it by like, you know, whatever. And so I wish I had listened to that sooner.
1: Yeah. Um, and done less. I wish I'd done a lot less. Yeah. Well that thing the the quote that comes to my mind is my friend Amber in my early 20s she was talking about it in a dating context but I say this all the time she always said desperation is a stinky cologne <laughs> And I feel like ever since she said that to me, and again, it was like totally in a dating context. For, like I, I see it all over. Like I see it yeah. in work all the time. I see it in whatever. It's like desperation is a stinky cologne. You like can't even wash it off of you if you get into that mode. And the more and it feels, you know, there's a sense of of there's some sort of privilege that comes along with the idea of not feeling or acting desperate. But at the same time, it's like I think it's just a, such a funny visual in my brain when I hear that or when it comes to my mind. Yeah. It's so yeah. good.
0: Because even, yeah, and there's, like, I mean, there's a certain extent to which, like, you do have to try. If you yeah. have aspirations, you do – you have to try. Like, you have to try more than well, other people. You,
1: you have to try and you have to show that you care. But there is a line between that and yeah. desperation. Right. But even I'm saying before that
0: line of desperation – because like, it doesn't take much to stand out, which I didn't realize until later, where it's like, I think you said this once, it's like most people aren't trying that hard or doing that much. And so like, you don't have like really strong competition most of the time. Yeah. And so I wish, I wish I had been able to fully take that into my heart sooner and realize that once you do one thing, I mean, I did one thing, and then it was like, will you do this over here. Can you run this thing, blah, blah, blah. And so then you get asked. Yeah. So the danger isn't desperation. It's like succeeding the first time and then not overdoing your reaction to that success because it yeah. comes on fast. Yeah. It really does. And then you're like, you know, years and years later, you've gotten into the – you've raced towards the wrong thing. Yeah. And not – I wish – this is an advice I got, but this is advice I would give now is treat your career like a business and the business is yourself. Mm. So when you're doing visioning, knowing that you're not going to know at the beginning what your whole career is going to look like, but your visioning is around the level of comfort that you want, you know, whether that's through money, time, and continue to work towards that and so use every job as much as the job is using you i think that would make a lot of people see that there's more of an opportunity by being proactive about what they want and operating from because business understands selfishness it does it that's the thing every no, like, I, business is nearly so
1: true and i was having a conversation with my sister over the weekend in a similar vein um And there was like this lamenting of it, right? And I think that there's actually the way that you just said that was so there's like no emotional attachment to the fact that business understands selfishness. And so the thing that you have to do then is also come to it from a place of selfishness rather than try to fight it or, or you know,
0: like it's a force you're not going to it's not it's a force you're not going to win against it. Yeah, exactly. And so go with it. Yeah. And when you do, you can find harmony. You can find yourself doing something that aligns with your values. Yeah. You know, it's just pursuing. That's why when I talk to founders now, I'm like, I go way back when they're starting to plan out, you know, the next couple of years. I'm like, hold on, hold on, hold on. We got to start with you. Because what I said to someone the other day is, you know, their personal uh, goals around wealth, time spent, et cetera, career. And I said, this is a, this is a, it's going to be tough in your world for, for, you know, probably the next two years at least. And so, you know, you need to pace yourself so that you can survive if you're really into doing this for another two years. Yeah, And that therefore, you know, starting with you and optimizing for you, that will ensure that you get there. Whereas like for me, like my mistake was I was so focused on impact That even though I knew to look out for myself, I didn't do it well. Hmm. I didn't do it well enough because I still, and then what that does is create this unseen. It's like someone, I think it was Cecilia, my coach, who said this was like the team feels whatever the CEO feels, whether you show it or not. And so you need to be okay. And I think what I saw was like my, Sort of desire for impact and the stress I felt from that that I couldn't see, yeah, trickled down and people were you know kind of so
1: yeah. Oh my god, hindsight's twenty
0: twenty. I guess I think I'm grateful for everything that I've done because I've learned something from it. And the nice thing is, the farther you get away from it, you're like. The thing that used to embarrass you, the thing you used to feel bad about, like that kind of goes away. You're like, it's fine. It wasn't a big deal to begin with. So I love that.